Hey, when I was 13 years old, my Aunt Stephanie took me on a 13-year-old birthday trip. She did that for each of me and my sisters. Um, and she took me to Chicago, where we went to Beatlemania, which is an international convention of Beatles fans and fanatics. Bobby's back there. I was totally into the Beatles as a young teenager, and um, my aunt did the cool thing and let me go hang out with a bunch of hippies. And uh, I thought it was incredible. But while we were there, she also took me to Chicago's Museum of Natural History. And it was a pretty transformative experience. I remember walking up the big steps and going inside to see this giant display of Tyrannosaurus Rex bones. And uh, I remember they had this hall that was just filled with all kinds of armor from Europe and Japan and weaponry. And it was just really cool. And I've developed a love for museums that trip, you know. And when we lived in Houston, we'd go to the Museum of Fine Arts. And last summer, Aaron and I went over to the Witte Museum in San Antonio and learned all about Texas history and the Cowboys and the Chisholm Trail and stuff that this guy from Alabama has no clue about. And the great things about museum is that whether you're an expert in paleontology or not, or whether you can tell Monet from Monet, Van Gogh from Vermeer, you don't have to know anything about it, because everywhere you go, there are these little placards on the wall describing to you what you see. And if you're really interested in the exhibit, you can put your headphones in, and you can walk around the hall and have a guided tour where some paleontologist or art historian tells you exactly what you're looking at, gives you all the vivid details, brings everything to life. And I think this passage is a lot like one of those guided tours that Jesus knows in just a few short hours, he's going to be ripped away from his disciples. And three and a half years of intimate ministry together is going to be in the rearview mirror. And everything that he's got left to do, they're going to be observing at a distance. And so here in this upper room, he gives them God's perspective. He gives them the divine narration the significance of his death. He gives them this tour. Guys, this is what I want you to see. This is what is happening. Look. And I'm really glad he did. Because we live 2,000 years removed from Jesus' death in Jerusalem. And a lot of history has happened since then. A lot of critics have tried to explain away the significance of Jesus' death. And we show up to church on a Sunday morning trying to re-engage with the mysterious truth of Christ's death. And how do you get through all that clutter? We come back to these words and this meal, and we're reminded again why Jesus died. And so this morning, as we work through this passage, I just want you to see one simple thing. that When you know why Jesus died, you'll receive the Lord's Supper with faith, gratitude, and hope. So let's work our way through this passage and figure out why Jesus died. Of course, over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through Mark 11, 12, 13, and 14, seeing Jesus' final week. It began when he left Jericho and ended up in Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, being escorted by a crowd of pilgrims who were shouting, Hosanna to God. On Monday, he showed up at the temple and evaluated its ministry and rendered his judgment. He said there's Nothing good here. And on Tuesday, he engaged in heated debates 
with the religious leaders over the source of his authority. On Wednesday, he's worshipped by the woman in Bethany. And then on Thursday, or if you're a Jew and consider time starting on the evening in the morning, by Friday evening, which we call Thursday night, they arrive at the Passover meal. The whole event that they've been pointing towards, the climax of the week. The disciples start to look around at each other and realize that Jesus hasn't adequately prepared for the meal. So they come to him, Mark tells us, and they ask him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? I like to think that maybe they, they think they finally caught Jesus unprepared, and so they're trying to like gently prompt him, hey, uh, you know, instead of coming to him and saying, hey, we think you forgot, they say, hey, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat? So they knew that every person who celebrated the Passover, every Israelite male was required to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem proper. And all week, they'd been staying two miles outside of the city in a village called Bethany. And that had been pretty good. Got them out of the crowds, gave them a place to rest and recover. But it was the inappropriate location for the Passover. So where do you want us to go? Where in the city could we find a place? And what they find is that he's apparently made secret preparations. That he's already got all the details worked out, even this secret passcode, a man carrying a water jar. And so he sends these disciples from Bethany into Jerusalem to look for this guy who's carrying the jar. They're going to follow him back to this house, and they're going to find there an upper room already prepared. The preparations would have included a low table and cushions on which they could recline. Everything would have been set except for the food. And so these disciples run off and find it just like Jesus said, and they went to the market and got all the, little, the things they needed for the meal, and evening comes around, and Jesus and the rest of them show up. And I love the fact that Jesus made these secret preparations. It's like earlier when he sent them into the city to find the donkey. Um, it tells you what's going through Jesus' mind. He's known all week that he was headed for Thursday night and the celebration of the Passover that was going to precede his death. And he wasn't going to leave anything to chance. He knew how pivotal this Last Supper was going to be for him. Because the Passover was a pivotal time for the people of Israel. Every year they'd been commanded by God in Exodus 12 and then elaborated in Deuteronomy 16 to remember how God had redeemed their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. I don't know if you remember the Exodus story. It's worth revisiting from time to time. And they have cartoon versions. If that's your speed, track it down or go home this afternoon and read the early chapters of Exodus. And what you'll find is amazing. I was actually reading in Genesis this morning how God brought Jacob and his sons from the land of Canaan all the way to Egypt during a time of famine. And they prospered there. I mean, they, Pharaoh had given them the best of the land, and their flocks grew, and their population exploded. But a time came when the Pharaoh, who knew Joseph and all his brothers, died. The Pharaoh forced the Israelites into slavery, and they were forced to build pyramids and tombs and monuments but God raised up a deliverer named Moses, and he sent him and said, Hey, tell Pharaoh to let my people go, they may worship me. And when Pharaoh said, No way, God sent ten plagues. You remember this? One after the next, proving his power and might over the Pharaoh and over Pharaoh's gods. Each plague was bad. Nobody wants frogs coming in their windows at night. But the tenth plague was the worst. And because Pharaoh had hardened his heart against God, and prevented God's son, Israel, from worshiping him, God said, I'm going to kill your son. 
And that's what he did. He killed the firstborn son in every household in Egypt, except for the homes that had been covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so Moses gave the people instructions that they were supposed to sacrifice this lamb and paint its blood over the doorpost and lintels of their door. And when the angel of God came through to take the firstborn from the home, their homes would be passed over. And every year, the first month of the year, the first day, the first month, the people of Israel remembered God's act of deliverance in the past. They ate a Passover meal. And the father would walk his family through the significance of the different elements, the unleavened bread that didn't have time to rise because the people were getting out of Dodge quick, the bitter herbs that reminded them of their time in slavery and bondage, the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed to pay for their sins. And so Jesus is ready to celebrate this meal with his disciples, except these words he speaks are not the traditional words explaining the significance of the Passover. He reinterprets them to point to himself. And that's where we see why Jesus died. So the first thing I want you to see as we work through verses 17 to 21 is that Jesus died to accomplish the plan of God. Jesus died to accomplish the plan of God. He said, when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he hadn't been born. Now look, Jesus has been warning his disciples for weeks that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over or betrayed, and the Jewish authorities are going to have him crucified, and he's going to be buried, and on the third day, he's going to rise again. They've had a hard time with that saying. I mean, every time Jesus says it in Mark 8, in Mark 9, and in Mark 10, Immediately, they sort of revolt and rebel against it. The first time Peter says, no way, Lord, will we ever let that happen to you. But as confused as they were, nothing quite prepared them for this warning. Came to them out of left field. Imagine it. Jesus in this room with his closest friends. One of y'all is going to betray me. And you, you see the worry in their voices. Surely not me. Talking about me, Jesus? I would never do such a thing. I mean, it triggered this flurry of questions. They, they thought they knew what Jesus was up to. And all of a sudden, that whole thing came crashing down. Who is it? Who is it? Not me, is it? I like the way the other evangelists cut straight to the chase and they tell us who it is. But I know you, didn't, you don't see Mark, uh, Mark show us Judas' name in this passage. Mark doesn't focus on Judas the way Matthew does, the way Luke does, the way John does. John records how Peter like, gets a nudge from one of the disciples and says, hey, Peter, you know, ask the master who he's talking about. And so Peter leans over to John, Jesus' best friend, and says, hey, you're his best friend. Ask him who it is. And then Jesus goes through this elaborate thing, and he says, it's the one to whom I hand the sop, or the piece of bread dipped in the oil. And then he hands it to Judas, and Judas leaves. Mark doesn't do that. Mark zooms in not on the betrayer, but on the one who's betrayed because he wants us to see the calm that's on Jesus. The disciples are frantic, worrying. Not me, is it? Who, who is it then if it's not me? 
And yet Jesus is so calm. He says, listen, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl, for the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. Disciples are confused, trying to figure out who it might be who's going to betray him, but Jesus is totally confident in the plan of God. I mean, Jesus is steeped in the scriptures of the Old Testament, and he's understood his mission based on the things he's read there and the way he's been guided by the Father through the Spirit. And he certainly knew of passages like Psalm 41 that he quotes, actually, in John 13. But Psalm 41.9 says, My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. In the Jewish culture, to eat bread with someone was to experience the deepest level of intimacy you could possibly have. And so to be betrayed by somebody you ate with is like the height of treachery. And yet Jesus was totally calm, not caught off guard by the fact that one of these men that he'd hand-selected was about to betray him. He knew what God's plan was. He'd seen it written in the pages of Scripture, and he developed this deep confidence that even if it was the case... But his own friend was going to stab him in the back. He knew how the story ended. Verse 10 of Psalm 41, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Jesus knew my, my friend's going to betray me, but God's going to vindicate me. He might stab me in the back, but God will not let his Holy One see corruption. He's not going to abandon my soul to the pit. Jesus knew that, that God's plan for him involved vindication, and not just vindication, but the second half of verse 10 says, You, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you're pleased with me, because my enemy doesn't shout and triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in your integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. What I want you to see is that Jesus' disciples hear this warning that one of y'all is going to betray me, and they lose their minds. And Mark zooms in on Jesus, and there's a calm on his face. Because he knows even though Judas is going to betray him, God will vindicate him and bring him to justice. This is a powerful, powerful thought. That when everyone sees Jesus finishing his ministry in a sputter, he's completely confident that he is accomplishing the plan of God. I would ask you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. And after the crucifixion, they scatter like sheep. They hide themselves behind locked doors for fear that the authorities are coming after them next. I wonder what was replaying in their minds. After Judas's deed was done and their master was laid in his tomb, you think they ever wondered, like, how could we have been so stupid? All the signs were there that Judas was going to betray the master. Why didn't I do something why didn't I tell him to stop? Why didn't I alert people to all the signs I saw? And yet, in their mind, surely they heard Jesus' words, it's going to happen just as it was written to me. And they are confused and worried, and I'm sure feeling guilty. But eventually, after the resurrection, they come to share the same confidence Jesus had. I love the way Peter says it in the book of Acts when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He, he looks at the very people who had crucified Jesus and betrayed him. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, 
You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I mean, the same confidence that pervaded Jesus in the upper room came to define the preaching of the gospel. That Jesus didn't die, as some of his modern critics would have us believe, because he was a rebel or an activist who was speaking truth to power. And the empire finally got him the way they do everybody. And he didn't die as the helpless victim. Like, Jesus had some good ideas, but, you know, all that was brought to an end too quick. No, Jesus died according to the plan of God. That was the way it was meant to be. Yeah, Judas had a role to play, and so did the Jewish authorities. And Judas suffered his fate, just as Jesus said he would. It had been better for that guy if he'd never been born. The Jewish authorities experienced judgment in AD 70 when Rome marched in and destroyed their city and tore their temple to the ground. But God's plan was accomplished. And Jesus, that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15:3, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. That Christ Jesus died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures, and was buried and on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. That even in the darkest hour of Jesus' life, when he's looking over the edge and seeing his betrayal, he had confidence that his death would accomplish the plan of God. Number two, though, Jesus didn't just die to accomplish the plan of God. He died to redeem the people of God. And that's where he gets into as he starts to explain the elements of the Passover meal. Verse 22 says, While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he'd taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, Jesus' disciples, who had been raised in a Jewish household, had heard the Passover ritual and ceremony dozens of times. And they knew how it was supposed to play out. The dad, or in this case, because Jesus was the rabbi and these were his disciples, Jesus would guide the conversation. And at various points of the meal, when they're eating the bread and the bitter herbs, or when they're drinking the first cup or the second cup, or when they're actually eating the Passover lamb, there would be special things that the children would say. They'd say, like, hey, Dad, why are we doing this? And the father would give instructions, saying, well, we're doing this because our ancestors were in bondage in Egypt. And so they must have been surprised when, instead of the usual well-rehearsed ritual of the Passover meal, Jesus goes off script. He blesses the bread. We worship you, God, the creator of all things, who causes bread to come from the earth. And then he breaks it and goes around the room and hands it to each one of them and says something totally unexpected, something that he's impressing upon them the significance of his death. Like, what is his death that's around the corner supposed to accomplish? And he's telling them, my death is me giving myself for you. He gave himself for them. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. Now, I know you know these words. We here at CBC, we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the last Sunday of every other month, but because the Lord's Supper passage fell on the second Sunday, we're doing it on the second Sunday, 
and which makes it's a little disconcerting to me, the guy who likes routine and rigid stuff. But hey, we're going to follow the Lord wherever He leads. But thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's a vote of confidence. But yes, yeah, so Jesus goes off script, and He's saying, "This is my body." And I know you're familiar with those words, but what is He talking about? This is my body, and. You imagine these men reclining at the table, reaching across to receive a piece of the broken bread. Jesus looks, in the eye, looks them in the eyes and says, this is my body. This is my body. This is my body. This is my body. Now, I don't believe he means his body, like his bones and skin. Other gospel writers say And we're going to talk about this here in a second from Luke 19, and then we'll talk about it later from 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body which is given for you. Or sometimes we think this is my body which is broken for you. And as we read the account of the crucifixion, they'll make a big deal that no bone in Jesus' body was ever broken. So to break the bread is not a symbol of what happens to Jesus' body. So I don't think that's what he's talking about. Rather, I I think he's talking about not his skin or his bones or his physical body or anything like that. He's talking about who he is, his whole self. I'm giving my, this is me. It's like what you do. If you're showing a friend a picture of your family vacation and you're in front of the Rocky Mountains and you say, hey, look, here we are. Oh, yeah, this is me. They know that that's not you, but it's a picture of you in a specific location. And what Jesus is impressing on his disciples is that this is me. This is what I'm doing for you. I'm giving myself for you. Jesus' death is not by accident, but it's purposeful, and it's a sacrificial, substitutionary death. He willingly gave himself for us. And as they reached across that table, and they received a piece of bread... They had to think what that must have meant, to to receive from him the gift of himself. And they they wouldn't fully comprehend what that meant till later on down the line. But what he's saying is that everything he accomplished in his self-giving death, they come to participate in directly from his hands. I mean, they would never be able to eat a piece of bread without thinking of the, the gifts that God has given them in Christ. That there is a deep participation that they're going to share in what Jesus accomplishes in his death. It's something that you share in. Not by physically eating, but by faith. When you take hold of the blessings of God that are yours in Christ, you receive from him what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I wish we really understood what that's about. Next week we've got a special guest preacher coming in. A good friend of mine named Dennis Hickey, who's going to preach to us from Paul's second prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. And he prays that we would know the depth of God's love for us. And I just wish you knew how blessed you were in Christ. That's what he's saying. I'm giving myself for you. Everything that I am is yours. Just reach out and receive it by faith. Of course, Jesus had been preaching this message to his disciples in public and in private, his whole ministry. I love what he says in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now, after having said it to them a thousand times, he was visibly demonstrating it like an enacted parable. Here I am, boys. Take and eat. So he gave himself for them, and number two, he shed his blood for them. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He shed his blood. Now, the body thing, we have to really wrap our minds around. The blood thing is a little bit easier. The red wine Jesus was drinking reminds you of blood. It's obvious when he says it. This is my blood. Where, where does blood come from, and how does it come to have any blessing in our lives? And surely these disciples would have thought about the Old Testament sacrifices. God had said the life of the animal is in its blood. So every animal that was offered as sacrifice gave its life in the place of another. And so the Passover, the lamb was slain so that the firstborn son could live. And when people showed up at the tabernacle and later the temple with a goat or with doves and the priests slaughtered them and poured out their blood and then quartered them up and put them on the altar to burn as a sacrifice to God, it was obvious to everyone what had happened. That every sin from the smallest to the greatest, is worthy of condemnation before a just and holy God. Somebody's going to have to pay. And in God's mercy, he gave this system whereby the sins of his people could be atoned and they could live in open relationship with him, assured of his blessing and grace. So they would go through the rituals, the sacrifice, to offer the blood of another in the place of their own. And then you start to look at this Passover dinner that Jesus is having with his disciples, and you see, well, there's a bowl with bitter herbs that the disciples are dipping in, and there's bread that gets broken, and there's cups that get drank, but there's one element conspicuously absent. It's the Passover lamb itself. And it's like Mark wants us to see that the blood that Jesus is talking about is the Passover, but not the Passover that... God had accomplished back then, but the one he was about to perform in front of their very eyes, that Jesus was going to shed his own blood for his disciples. And in the same way that that first lamb painted on the doorposts and lintels of the Israelite homes ensured that those inside were spared from the wrath of God. So to the blood of Jesus spilt on behalf of everyone who takes hold of him by faith is a sign that the punishment that we deserve has been placed on him. And that the penalty that our sins deserve has been placed on him. And that the guilt that our sins can incur has been placed on him. And that he died in our place to redeem us from our sins. It's what Joshua read for us early, earlier. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid on him, and by his stripes we're healed. We all, like sheep, go astray. We turn everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Jesus is saying. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out many. Jesus was about to die to redeem the people of God by giving his own life. Because of that, it's nearly impossible to overstate the significance of Jesus' death. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you know how big of a deal it is that Jesus died for you? Sometimes people think, hey, Jesus was a great teacher. And like, just adopt his way of life. Just live according to his teaching, and you'll be a good person, and things will go well for you in the world. 
But the cross is not an inconsequential part of Jesus' life that you can just sit to the side and take his teachings. Jesus' death is the big deal. It's the crux of our faith. It, everything hangs on this. Because like we talked about earlier, you can't follow Jesus' we sang it. You can't follow Jesus' teachings enough to atone for your sin. He has to die in your place. That's what Jesus did. That's why the author of the letter to the Hebrew, Hebrews goes into such vivid detail. How many of y'all have read the book of Hebrews? Okay, good. Let's see if by this time next year we can get that up to 100%. All right? It's dense and it's going to take some you know, slogging through it, but do it. He goes into such great detail about the significance of Jesus' death. And, and I want you to hear it. This is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not the, ones that it, that, not the one made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And he didn't enter the tabernacle through the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who've been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So this is the significance of Jesus' death. Not that a sacrifice has been made. Sacrifices were made all the time. In fact, like every day, the streets of Jerusalem ran red with the blood of sacrificial goats. That wasn't the issue, that finally a sacrifice. There were sacrifices. The problem was those sacrifices were insufficient they could never accomplish what you and I really need, which is a sacrifice that once for all does away with the guilt and transgression that we bear before our holy God. And what Jesus did is he opened up a new and living way into God's presence, not by giving us new and improved sacrifices, but offering himself and therefore rendering the sacrificial concept obsolete. No more sacrifice needs to be made than the one Jesus made in himself. And that's why he's the mediator of a new covenant. It's the, the blood of the new covenant that he's poured out for many. That there's a new way to relate to God, and it's on the basis of faith and participation in the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus lays it out there for his guys. Listen, this is the word I want you to hear. This is what I want you to see. This is my body. I'm giving myself for you. My death is for you something I'm undertaking willingly on your behalf. And number two, I'm about to shed my blood to cover your sins once and for all. So then number three, why did Jesus die? Jesus died to bring God's kingdom. We see that finally in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I'll never again drink the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry. And here he is at the very end of his time with his disciples, thinking ahead about that kingdom. It's only fitting, his first words after he came out of the wilderness was, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And here at the very end, he's saying, guys, the kingdom is still coming, and one day I'm going to see you there. 
and we'll drink together again. See, most of us would look at Jesus' death and think that all the good things he accomplished in his life were cut off short. They came to an abrupt stop. Like imagine if Jesus had gone on living and healing more people. And what if he himself went to the ends of the earth and preached the gospel and everybody got a chance to see him as the disciples did? Wouldn't that have been amazing? And so we see his death as somehow bringing what he could have done to an end. But Jesus says, my death isn't disconnected from the mission the Father sent me to fulfill. It's the very means by which I'm going to accomplish it. And this is so mismatched to what the disciples expected. So they'd also read their scriptures. And they knew that the Old Testament had promised a Messiah who, according to Psalm 110, was going to get a personal invitation from God to sit at his right hand. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And they knew what God had said of the anointed in Psalm 2, that he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so they had stoked their expectations of the Messiah and then had placed all those on Jesus in thinking that he was going to be this conquering king who was going to ride in and finally do his enemies in. Finally, the enemies were going to be a footstool under his feet and they're going to get broken like little pieces of pottery scattered on the ground. But Jesus is totally uninterested in operating that way. He has a whole different plan. And so he starts talking about it. Hey, when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed by men, handed over to their leaders, and he's going to be crucified and die and be buried, and on the third day he's going to rise again. And they lose it. No way, Lord, will we ever let this happen to you. They think in their own categories of power. And so they hear him talk about the kingdom and James and John say, hey, well, can we sit at your right hand and left hand? He says, y'all are missing it. The rulers of the Gentiles love to lord it over their people, but the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They're placing all these triumphalistic expectations of a conquering Messiah on Jesus, and he's just uninterested. He's going to accomplish and bring about his kingdom in a totally unexpected way. The cross wasn't a roadblock for Jesus. It wasn't a speed bump in God's plan. He knew that the cross was the avenue, was the means by which he was going to come to wear the crown that God had promised him. It was the way he had to go. There are places you can read this all over the scriptures. I love Hebrews 12, which says that for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross and suffered the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus saw it in the distance and saw what stood in his way. And at his darkest moment, as we'll see in Gethsemane, he said, yes, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want be done. And so he went through the cross. But the probably clearest example of this is in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul encourages us to have this mind, which is ours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There it is. Jesus died. But why? Paul continues, for this reason, because he humbled himself, Because he became obedient, because he died on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. The cross wasn't some kind of roadblock to God accomplishing his plan in Jesus. It was the very way that he intended to bring about his kingdom. And Jesus saw it. He said, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to give myself for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you. But one day I will see you again in God's kingdom where we're going to live under his glorious rule and reign forever and ever. That was Jesus' point. I'm going to die, but I'm going to bring God's kingdom in the process. I wish you could have been there that night. I wish you could have gathered around the table with Jesus and you could have received from his hand the bread. And you could have drank from the cup. I wish you could have seen the love in his eyes for you. I wish you could have heard his voice. I wish it rang for you like it did for them as they remembered the narration and the significance of his death as they watched it from a distance. But God is good that he's given you a preacher and preachers that through the course of your life have rang this message over and over and over that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And you've believed it. You've heard it from his very mouth. He didn't die for no reason. He died for you. And you know it, and you've staked your hope on it. And then did he not only give you the gospel, but he gave you this meal. We call it the Lord's Supper. And he says that as often as we eat it, to eat it in remembrance of him. And I love it because the Lord's Supper takes for us the gospel message that we've heard our whole lives and that we get the privilege of proclaiming to our children and to our friends and communicating it to all senses. We get to see it. We get to taste it. We get to touch it. We get to smell it. And we get to hear those words that tell us what we're looking at. That this is my body. This is not a cracker. It is a cracker. You know that. But what it symbolically represents is something far greater. That Jesus gave himself for you. And you taste the cup, and it's juice or wine, but it's more than that. It's a tangible reminder and expression of what Jesus did for you when he willingly offered himself on the cross to save you from your sins. The Lord's Supper hits us in the past, that Jesus accomplished the plan of God. But there was a day when he stood before the authorities And they put him on trial and found him guilty and they delivered him over to be crucified. And he did that then in the past to accomplish the plan of God. And it meets us in the present. Or present reminder that he redeems the people of God. I love there's a fountain filled with blood, one of the greatest songs written in all times. And there's this verse, y'all know I'm always doing this, I forget the words as soon as I start talking about it. There's this verse... Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Something like that. Jesus is redeeming his people today. He accomplished the plan of God back then, but he is still alive and active today. His spirit is working probably in your hearts today, reminding you the truth that he's redeeming you. He's redeemed you once. He's redeeming you every day as you come to him to find mercy and grace in your time of need. He is still at work in your life. As the Lord's Supper reminds you 
that Jesus isn't just a person who lived some time long ago, but he's a person who is present with us by his spirit, communicating to us more and more of who he is, getting the truth of the gospel deep into our hearts until it transforms everything about us. And then it reminds us that God has a future for us, that Jesus died to bring his kingdom. And though the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed, there will come a day when this feast is eclipsed by one far greater, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the people of God from every age will be gathered around his throne and table to feast with the finest foods, that what we've experienced as a foretaste and a first fruits here can't even compare. It's not even fair to call it an appetizer. He has that in store for you. He's bringing his kingdom, and you're invited to enter in and feast. And so this morning, I pray that since you know why Jesus died, you'll receive the Lord's Supper with faith. When you hear the words, this is my body for you, it won't be my words, it'll be his words. And you'll receive it, take hold of him by faith. I believe it, Jesus. I believe that you gave yourself for me. And I believe you'll receive it with gratitude. That you know what it must have meant for the Father to send his only begotten Son to die for you. And so as you take the bread and as you take the cup, it won't be a meaningless ritual. Something you do because that's what we do around here. But it'll be something that expresses to God the deep gratitude you have for who he gave you in Jesus. And I pray that you'll take it in hope, believing that God has better things in store for you and me when we gather around his table and his kingdom. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, I don't expect for you to have any connection to the things we've been talking about this morning. The Lord's Supper is something he gives to his people. And if you're not part of his family, the family meal doesn't make a lot of sense. But there's an open invitation extended to everyone who hears his voice not to harden their hearts against him as Pharaoh did, but to admit what God already knows. That you're a sinner separated from God by your sin and you're desperately in need of a Savior. This supper ought to be a visible, tangible proof that Jesus died for you. He died for everybody who will put their faith in him and trust in him to forgive them of their sins. And so this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I would love to help you discover what it means to know and follow him. In a few moments, Mike and the band are going to come lead us in another song. I'll be down here at the front. I'd love to talk to you. Just get out from where you are and come down. Maybe this is a reminder today that you're not where you need to be in your relationship with God. Paul tells us that we ought to examine ourselves before we eat the supper. And maybe as you've been hearing this message this morning, it's been obvious to you that you're not where you need to be with God. But the invitation extends to you too, that wherever you are, how far away you might be from God, you can get right back where you need to be today. And I'd love to help you figure out how to get back in a relationship with God, how to recommit your life to following Jesus. Maybe you know Jesus, you're following him, but you need a family to come around you and support you. This church would love to be your family. You want to make this your church home, I'd love to talk to you about that. But maybe you just sense in your heart that you need somebody to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you, whatever it is. Come on down and we'll pray. There'll be some people in the back, they'd love to pray with you too. So whatever it is that God's doing in your heart, will you prepare yourself to receive the supper with faith, gratitude, and hope?
And will you be obedient however he leads? All right, let's pray.